Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. We, we see some of what they faced in the past, but we also know we face things today. Yet, Paul says that there is glory on the other side. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which will be revealed to us. And it's not just that we will one day see God's glory, as wonderful as that is. He said that we are waiting for the glory which shall be revealed in us. We're not going to stand passively, idly to the side and see all this great stuff happening and say, boy, I wish I could be a part of that. You are a part of that. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on January 24th, Lord's Day service. Texas morning is the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the heart hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him freely give us also all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who shall make intercession for us. Who is even, excuse me, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Father and God, as we are in Your presence, cause us to receive the testimony that You have given. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. This morning, the message is simple. If God is for you, there is no power on heaven or earth that can overcome you. The text is from one of the most moving passages in all of Scripture. 
Romans chapter 8. For the Christian, the one who loves God, there is no need to question your standing before God. If you belong to Him, you are cosmically untouchable. Have you ever wondered if you have done enough? If you have what it takes to persevere? Here the Apostle answers that question directly and without uncertainty. You are destined for glory. Let's step back in the book of Romans to get a full picture of what the Apostle is saying in this letter. In Romans chapter, chapters 1 through 3, Paul says that we all, Jews and Gentiles, we are all under God's condemnation. Now the Jews who had been God's people in the Old Covenant, they knew that the Gentiles were under condemnation. They knew all the filthy habits, the disgusting things that the Gentiles were doing at the time. But they had confidence because, as they said, we're children of Abraham. We're the people of the covenant. But Paul says, no, just because you were born into a particular family does not mean that you're right with God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that also the Jews are under condemnation. It's not enough that you have the law. It's not enough that you have all these standards that you know you are called to keep and to say, well, I, I keep it about 53% of the time, and so because I do it most of the time, I'm okay. Paul's saying, no, because you fail in the law, you come short of what you know you were called to do, that's not enough. It's insufficient. You cannot have the good news of the gospel without the bad news of your lostness, without the bad news of your sinfulness. So when you try to understand the greatness of Almighty God, you cannot understand the greatness of God without seeing the fallenness of man. But in Romans chapters 4 and 5, Paul answers that the children of Abraham are not just those people who are born Jewish. It's not just those who are circumcised. But rather, it is all who put faith in Christ whether Jew or Gentile, all those who believe in God by faith are righteous. It is the work of Christ Himself that makes us right, not our having the right family or keeping the right laws, precisely because if that's your standard, it's not going to work. But if your standard is resting upon the work of Jesus Christ, you're there. Your perfection is a gift. Because when God the Father looks at you, He counts you perfect because of His Son. In Romans 6, Paul goes on to say that we are still though called to obey. Just because we are given this freedom, just because we are justified before God, does not mean that we can live any old wretched way we want we're still called to live in submission to God. 
But then in Romans 7, he says, that's pretty hard to do. Because in the Old Covenant, even though God's people there, the Jews, even though they had the law, it's hard. And Paul talks about what it was like for him as someone who is in the covenant, what, it, what he had to do when he was in that, in that time. It was hard. He said that he, the feelings of wretchedness, that feeling of being pulled, was almost impossible. So he ends by saying, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And that takes us to Romans 8. Romans 8 tells us that now what happened in the past is changed. In Christ, we have new life. We are under a new law called the law of liberty. And we have entered a new creation. And this chapter gives us hope that despite the problems we see despite the sufferings that we face, none of those things can derail us from God's plan. So we pick up then in verse 26. After Paul had spoken at the beginning of the, the chapter by saying that they, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, he says in verse 18, he talks about the suffering of God's people. Now later on in the chapter, we get an idea, a more full idea of the sufferings Christians faced during that time when he talks about nakedness, famine, peril, and sword. Okay, If it was us writing this, we'd be talking about the sufferings of being unfriended, losing our platform, Things like that. I know that there are worse sufferings that we face. But you know, when you compare the, the, the political sufferings of Christians at the time and ours, the scales don't really match up very well. But we're being prepared. And this chapter is preparation because even though our suffering does not look like theirs, we still suffer. The suffer take, suffering takes on a more internal nature at times. There are things that we have to deal with that granted our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago did not. So it's different, but don't say you're not really suffering, so toughen up, buttercup. Get over yourself. It's not that bad. We face affliction. If you say, I'm too strong to suffer. It's not going to affect me. You're lying. If the Apostle Paul tells the saints to be encouraged in Christ in suffering because he himself also suffered, are you saying you're tougher than Paul? I hope not. So we face suffering. We get, an, as I said, we, we see some of what they faced in the past, but we also know we face things today. Yet, Paul says that there is glory on the other side. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which will be revealed to us. 
And it's not just that we will one day see God's glory, as wonderful as that is. He said that we are waiting for the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory of God is going to display itself from the inside out. We're not going to stand passively, idly to the side and see all this great stuff happening and say, boy, I wish I could be a part of that. You are a part of that. Even the creation, Paul says. That means all created things that are in submission to God. Essentially, everything that's not actively opposing God's work in His world, the creation groans. It longs for God's children to be revealed and for them to be glorified. If we didn't have this passage and just we heard a random person, a random Christian or a pastor say that, we would think, you're crazy. That doesn't even make any sense. Are you saying that the earth itself, how can it have feelings? Well, God told Cain that the blood of Abel cried out from the earth. You say, he didn't really mean it. But this is, he, Paul is giving an active emotion, that of hope, that of expectation, eager longing here to the earth. The creation longs for it. It groans and we groan. We see sin. We see hate, injustice. We see destruction of the order that God created and many other things all around us. Paul says that we groan inwardly, waiting for God's display of our redemption. We have an inherent desire to see the world put right. We want to see the things that are wrong turned and made right. We want to see creation restored as God ordained it, yet in the meantime, we are called to hope. We are called to hope. He says in verse 26, we were saved in hope, but hope which is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Hope is an important and often neglected Christian virtue. But it's one of the three primary Christian virtues that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13. He calls the state that, that we are in now, though, of the, the facing of sufferings, the, the desire to see things right, and the internal struggle that we feel when things are, are disordered, he calls it our weakness. And he says that the Spirit, God's Spirit, helps us in our weakness. Not only our individual weakness, but in the weaknesses that we face because of the situations that surround us. Do you ever get discouraged because of your weakness? Please don't say, oh, actually I have no weakness, because that's not true. If you say that, that's a big one. Do you ever wish you could do more in God's kingdom? Do you ever say, I'm not very useful? 
If, 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 when you hear that, you're being asked to believe a lie. God has given you gifts. Maybe you think you aren't good enough to do anything in God's kingdom. If that's you, Paul is inviting you in the rest of this chapter. He's inviting you to get a better glimpse of what God is doing. And he's offering you his hand to come up and look at God's work from the majestic mountain of God's love. And it's a very different view than what we often see when we look from ground level. God has a plan for your sin. He has a plan for your neighbor's sin. For the sins that you see in your household and for all the evil that sin brought into the world. Because Jesus took the sins of the world upon Himself and He defeated it at the resurrection he takes everything that happens and works it for good. That's, that's how verse 28, one of the most famous verses in all of Romans chapter 8, comes in. He said, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who, to those who are the called according to His purpose. We can't just rip that out. Although it's a wonderful verse by itself, when you take it out from the entire passage, you miss what Paul's argument is. And his argument is that in the midst of everything that you face, the sufferings that you experience, the sufferings that you see others facing, the injustice that's all around us, in the midst of all of that, God is working. He is taking it. In the resurrection of Christ, He is reversing everything that went wrong. No matter how destructive, how evil, and how wretched you have been, or those around you have been, if you cast yourself upon the rock, He makes it beautiful. doesn't matter how far you are or how far you may feel. Whatever's in your past, God takes that. And He redeems it. Whoever you are. Whatever the situation is. Do not say, my sin and my problems are too great for the Almighty. Because that's actually pride that's holding you back. There is no sin or evil event that is outside the plan of God. That's the message of Romans 8.28. God knew you before you knew yourself. As he goes on to say in the next verse, verse 29, you are a part of His plan. He chose you. He bought you. He made you clean through Jesus' work on the cross. And He is working in you through the Spirit. He doesn't just take you and say, I'll make it better. Now you go in the corner and you be quiet. No, He is actively working. He said that... the. Those who He foreknew, He predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. Moreover, those whom He predestined, these He called, whom He called, He justified, whom He justified, these He also glorified. You say, I looked in the mirror this morning, I didn't see anything glorified. You're looking with the wrong eyes. 
These are the, we're called to eyes of faith. And that is what we must see. Yes, we still fall, we still sin, we still have to repent, we still confess, all of those things. But He is working. Remember, it's part of God's plan. And it's not just you, though, individually. We can't take this and only say, individualize it and say, this is just about me. It's not just about you. He has done this for all of His people. He is working through you and you and you and you, all of us together, not only in this room. He's working through the saints all across the world. He's a big God. You don't have to worry if things are going to work out. You don't have to worry about how much you've done today or whether you were holy enough or whether you have what it takes right now. All you do is you take one step at a time, brother and sister, one step. And you may not think that you can take one step. Do it in faith. Your story is one of the millions and millions of small stories that make up, that are making up right now the almighty plan of God. And it will be one of the billions of stories told in the new heavens and the new earth. If you don't like stories, God will sanctify that. Because there will be plenty of them in time. The longing for restoration, for returning to Eden, not just the old Eden, but even the greater and glorified Eden that will encompass the whole earth. That is precisely what is in view in verses 18 through 30. What you're hoping for, even if you don't understand what you're hoping for, what you're hoping for is coming. God is working in us quietly to bring these things about. Are there detours? Yes. Do things happen at like, the, like we expect them to happen? Of course not. I don't know of a person that I've ever met who is an adult who says, yes, everything turned out exactly as I had it planned when I was 18. Exactly. We sin. We suffer. We groan. But through it all, God is working. So how can you have hope that God is working in you when you still fail, when you still sin? Did anybody, has anybody not sinned this morning? Tell us about it in a little bit. That... We, we all sin. But because the kingdom of God does not begin or end with you, God's plan is not stopped. God's plan is wider, and it includes a people, not just individuals. You are one of billions of Christians spanning centuries, continents, and denominations. God is not dependent on you, which should give you hope. Even when you fail, God is faithful. So after telling us about how God is working in His cosmos, Paul drives home his application through a series of probably the most wonderful, blessed, rhetorical questions that have ever been launched. 
And he begins with this. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God gave His only Son Jesus to die for us, is there anything that He's going to withhold from us? Who can bring a charge against God's chosen people? Who could possibly condemn you except the one who is right now at the right hand of God making intercession for you? And finally, what possible event or being can separate you from God's eternal, infinite love? The God who does all these things, who created the world and is restoring the world, not only loves this, His world, He loves you. And that will never change. They may bring the greatest accusations against you. The world may take your job. They may take your home. They may take all your possessions. They may take everything. I don't want us to think that the things that Paul talks about in Romans 8 cannot happen. Because they already do happen to our brothers and sisters in other places right now. I mean, We, we can read about things that happened in the early church But a brief glance at history will say that the 20th century was by far the deadliest century for Christians of any time in history. I don't know what the Lord has in store, and I'm not trying to be a fear monger here. But Paul's point is not to drum up fear. Paul's point is to say, in Christ, you're untouchable. God's love is upon you. God's love is within you, and it doesn't matter. You are invincible in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we believe that, what's going to happen? When we believe that, I'm not saying that that, that that means we all have to go out and start you know, massive Christian protests everywhere. That, that's not the point either. Paul never told the Christians, uh, please picket Rome. In fact, the gladiatorial games were, ne were not stopped by Christians holding signs out in front of the stadium. You know how they were stopped? One monk named Telemachus, who was a hermit in the desert, who came at Christmas time to visit the churches in Rome. He went to the Colosseum. And he had no idea what he was going to see. And he observed what happened. He saw gladiators fighting. And he was so overtaken with horror at the evil, at the carnage that was going on between these two, that he stepped between two men who were bigger, stronger, and had much more deadly weapons physically than what he had. And he called out to them to stop. And he's calling out to the crowd to stop the carnage. So he has his hands between two soldiers who had been defeated by the Roman army, two men who had to fight to the death, and he's telling them, stop, do not do this, do not enact this murder. And the crowd starts jeering. They started yelling at him and railing at him. And so what happened? Well, those two soldiers just killed him. And the crowd started throwing rocks at his body. 
He had no intention of doing this. He just went to Rome to visit the churches. This is the situation God put him in. Yet, do you know what happened? The people were so taken with the work, with Telemachus giving himself the sacrifice. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, there was never another gladiatorial contest after the death of Telemachus. One man going to visit the church, the churches in Rome, in the place where God put him at one particular time. And he was faithful. Now don't, I'm not saying you should go look for opportunities to do that, okay? But the point is, God's work in that one man was a powerful testimony that he used to end centuries of bloodshed in these horrid games. The God who does these things loves you. So no matter what the world brings, they can dish out the best. God's, God is for you. And that will not change. Because He loves you, the greatest enemies we face, we, we face death, the pleasures and the cares of this life, demonic forces who hate us and who work against us, they cannot remove you from God's love. In whatever we face, He says we are overwhelming conquerors because of Jesus Christ. The God who is bringing the world to order, who is working through His people to restore all things in Christ, this same God is the one who loves you. Not because of what you do. Not because of how many good Christian check marks that you can mark off. Or how many liberals you argue with in certain places. No. God loves you because you belong to Christ. Full stop. So how do we apply this? What do we do in the light of God's unshakable love? First of all, bring your sin to God. The thing that keeps most people, most Christians, from walking in fellowship with God is that they try to hide their sin. That's not the way that we can enjoy the light of Christ. That's not the way we can enjoy fellowship. We are called to confess it. Repent of it. Come. He's seen the worst. Jesus has been with you when you were committing the sin. He heard everything you said. He heard everything that you mumbled. He heard every thought that went through your mind that you didn't say but you secretly relished. He's seen every act that you've done to yourself, to other people, doesn't matter. He's the only one who can deal with it, so you might as well confess it and bring it to Him. Secondly, show this love to others. We know God loves unconditionally. But it's not easy for us. We put our own requirements on others as far as 
how much love we will show. Do they look like us? Do they smell like us? Do they hold our precise theological views? God works in the world through His people, loving and blessing others, and that includes loving and blessing others who don't deserve it. None of us came in deserving God's love. Yet God's love is manifested through us loving them. Lastly, do not fear what lies before you. God calls some to suffer persecution for His name. Others He calls to face different trials of a quieter and less visible nature. Whatever it is that you're facing, though, don't discount it. Don't say, well, I'm not a very spiritual person because other people are facing a lot worse than I am, and I'm struggling with this really small thing that so-and-so wouldn't even have any, any problem with. doesn't matter. Only God knows precisely where you are. Whatever you face, though, you do not have to fear it, is Paul's point. Because God loves you, He will do and He will give you everything you need to face the new opportunities, opportunities that He sends your way. Brother and sister, if you belong to God, God is for you. He loves you. You may face hard trials, difficult situations, and not know how things will work out, but He has not left. The world is looking for the revelation of God's children. And you demonstrate what that looks like when you go to work or go to school with joy. When you wash a dish, when you make a meal, when you change a diaper, when you bless instead of get angry, when you give to the people who don't deserve it, God is demonstrating His love through you. No matter how well or how poorly things go, the same God who is working all things together for good, who is restoring heaven and earth, said that nothing can separate you from His love. No matter what happens, rest in God's love and take every opportunity to demonstrate that love to others. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your unshakable and unspeakable love. We pray that we would see this in faith, that we would receive it, and we would grow into it. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.